This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Moranalytics Podcast. Today is Monday, March 26th. After weeks of chasing him down, I finally caught up to Bleacher Report, NFL features writer, and one of the very best in the business, Tyler Dunn. Seriously, and I'm not exaggerating. I've been trying to get this guy on the podcast for weeks. He's just been really busy. Our schedules haven't worked out. <laughs> I should say his schedule hasn't worked out. I ain't got shit to do. I'm always available. But anyway, I was able to connect with him this past week, and it was awesome. Bleacher Report published a phenomenal story Tyler just did recently after flying out to Arizona on the Honey Badger, Tyron Matthew. We talk about that as well as other NFL and Buffalo Bills news, his journey through the ranks of the newspaper business, and being that hard-hitting journalist I am, I get the inside scoop on Tyler's wedding proposal. Oh, and TD also has some saucy hot takes on former Bills tackle Cordy Glenn, Johnny Football, and Michael Jackson that, trust me, you're definitely going to want to hear. After that, I have an abbreviated version of Pat with Pucks this week where we pick our most rewatchable movies ever and we each select an album that's so good you simply cannot skip one single track. Finally, we wrap up with our podcast weekly awards, terrible tweets to maybe the greatest cornerback who's ever lived, MVP to the improbable return of one of my favorite wrestlers ever and LVP to one of the biggest douchebags in Hollywood and his corny whack-ass tattoo. All that and more in just a few. I hope you guys had a great weekend. I definitely did. My daughter flew down from Buffalo to Florida to visit me, her and her boyfriend. She's on spring break from college. And all in all, it was an awesome weekend. On Saturday, a friend scored sweet box tickets to the New York Yankees spring training game in Tampa against Toronto, so I took advantage of that. I've been living in Florida for almost two years now, and sadly, I have yet to see a Yankees spring training game. So with this opportunity, I finally got my lazy ass in the car with them and took an hour or so drive to Tampa. George Steinbrenner Field is the shit. Beautiful memorabilia all over the place. Great stadium. I love spring training baseball for so many reasons. And one of them is the intimacy of stadiums that are built for spring training. That's how all the stadiums are. It just feels like there's not a shitty seat in the house. So the seats are all good. The environment and the atmosphere is great. And of course, the baseball is a lot of fun too. 
By the way, not that it matters at all, but the Yankees did beat Toronto 13-6. Was it 13-6? Yeah, 13-6. The coolest part, at least baseball-wise, was getting to see Giancarlo Stanton hit a fucking bomb so far out of the stadium. I'm not even sure that shit's landed yet two days later as I taped this podcast. Didi went deep. So it was a great game for the Yankees. I'll give you an inside scoop here, though. Don't go to Vegas and bet on David Hale winning the AL Cy Young Award this year. Your boy got lit up over three innings by Toronto. It was a great time, and I need to start seeing more spring training games. If I'm going to live in Florida, you got to be pretty stupid to not take advantage of going to watch spring baseball. So anyway, that was a lot of fun. Sunday was even more fun. The family went to Siesta Key, so I got a chance to go to the beach, soak in some rays on what was a picture-perfect day, and check out the famous Sunday drum circle, which at Siesta is unlike anything else I've ever seen. It's incredible. Speaking of incredible, at Siesta, when the weather is right, you get to witness one of the most incredible sunsets directly off the Gulf of Mexico that you'll ever see. Yesterday was one of those perfect sunny days. Anyway, that was my kick-ass weekend with family and friends, and it rocked, man. Rocked. I feel great, and I'm ready to give you guys a really good episode. So on that note, here's my interview with Tyler Dunn, followed by Pat with Pucks, and a couple of closing segments. All right, so it's taken me a couple weeks to track them down, but I finally have. My guest today is Bleacher Report NFL Features Writer and one of the very best in the nation at doing it. I'm talking, of course, about Tyler Dunn. Tyler, what's going on, man? Thanks for coming on the podcast. Dude, great to be here. Great to connect. I know uh, we, we've crossed paths a few times over the years, so I'm a big fan of the podcast, man. Great to be a part of it. Thanks, man. I appreciate you coming on. Firstly, and I know it's not brand new news, but it was recent, so I wanted to offer congratulations on your recent engagement. I, I'm not going to name the name. I know Tyler's fiance pretty well. She's an awesome woman. <laughs> She's awesome. So I was really happy to hear that news. I want you to give us a scoop here. Take us through proposal day. Give, give, us, give us a scoop here. I want, I want to know the process, how you felt on proposal day. What went on that day? Oh, my God. It's, uh, well, for, it's, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate the, uh, the kind words there. And, man, it is a, uh, an adrenaline rush that you just can't even begin to describe. You know, I, I talked to a lot of people about it, what, what they felt, the buildup, the moment, all of it. And I mean, it wasn't like a surprise to either one of us. I mean, we kind of knew day one um, that we were in love and we're going to get married and God, I never even really believed in that stuff. But man, we, we both felt it right away. Right. So we knew it was coming, but, um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the timing, it was a surprise to her. And so we, uh, I knew kind of wanted to, uh, go to the Niagara Gorge. We had been there, gosh, I think like a month prior. It's just a really great spot, you know, out, out on the Niagara river, got the falls coming down right there. And so, yeah, I just kind of, um, walked on down and it's, it's like a good hour long walk on the way down there. So you have a lot of time to, to think about everything. And it's just wild because you just know, like, you know, with a handful of words, you're about to change both of your lives like forever. So, you know, a, a month before I was able to, uh, like set up a photo, like on my phone with a timer. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I acted like I was doing again. Like it was just going to like, you know, take a photo down there. Cause we were just there and everything, uh, instead of 
doing a photo though, I hit record on a video. So we were able to get like the whole proposal and her amazing reaction um, on the video. And, and yeah, Gina was surprised. It was awesome. I loved it. I got, I did get to see the video. It was awesome. Now you mentioned, you've (laughs) mentioned that we have crossed paths before all the way back. This goes all the way back to 2006. You were writing for uh, under scout.com, the umbrella for the Buffalo bills report. I joined that dude. I'm going to be honest with you. I did not know at the time you were only like a freshman in college at the time, weren't you? That's right. That's right. Holy yeah. Shit. Um, I can't believe and I, I'm not blowing smoke here and I'm not patronizing you. I can't believe how good you were at such a young age. <laughs> I was blown away. I didn't know it at the time. I thought, you know, you're a 25, 30 year old adult. I'm like, all right. Cause I don't remember how we connected originally, but I knew that they needed another writer. So I applied and I ended yeah. up getting the gig and you were the editor for the bills. But I remember the name back then. I was like, I could not believe to find out that you were only a freshman in college at the time. Wow. Man, I appreciate that. Yeah, it was kind of like, you know, that going to Syracuse um, and writing for the Daily Orange. So that was kind of like, I guess, like the foundation for for everything. But then, like, I kind of wanted to stay involved with Scout.com because I I had written for the Packer Report on the Packers website on Scout.com and actually – interned out in green Bay for a couple summers, just living out of a hotel covering training camp and, and doing that. So once I think they saw that I was from the Buffalo area and went to Syracuse and all of that, it kind of took off. Man, I appreciated the help back then. I think uh, you and maybe one other guy were like my only writers uh, that we got to work together. So it was, it, was, it was a fun thing on the side. It was a lot of fun. What a young age for you to be doing so much. You know what I mean? Interning, like you said, working with the Packers, that, that's young to be getting off to that kind of start. You know, I just, it was, I just kind of always known that I wanted to get into sports writing ever since I can remember, like, you know, gosh, back to 10, 11 years old and, and writing the, uh, the Packer weeklies for mom and dad, <laughs> and, you know, doing notebook kind of paper. started way back then. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? And probably on notebook paper with a pen, right? Ex- exactly. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. All that good stuff. And just got in with the only end times Herald, like my hometown paper, you know, 15, 16, uh, working the desk, covering high school sports. Chuck Pollock, just an incredible human being in every way. Um, one of the best sports writers, one of the best guys you'll ever you'll ever meet. Um, just gave me a chance, and you know, started writing columns and, and doing stuff for him. And kind of one thing led to another. I, I guess it it kind of started. I think the Bills played the Packers in a preseason game uh, before my senior year of high school, and just following the Packers my whole life. I just contacted the editor of the Packer Report to see if he'd want me to string the game for him. Cause I didn't really know if, like a weekly publication, if they uh, send, send me somebody out to Buffalo and uh, sure enough, he, you know, let me cover it. And from there, just kind of talked my way into internships with them. And, you know, I just got to, it's good just to dive right in, man. It was fun living out in Shawano, Wisconsin, green Bay out of a hotel. I think one of the summers there was like a cult in Shawano, Wisconsin. It was actually all over CBS news. You can look it up. Like it's kind of yeah. crazy, but. Yeah, so that was kind of entertaining, but um, I've been really fortunate, man. Get a lot of a lot of great editors, a lot of great people to work with, and one thing led to another, and uh, get to be back here, Western New York, friend of Bleacher Report. Now, growing up in Olean, correct? What made you a Packers fan at such a such a young age? Yeah, yeah, and I actually, um, it was like Salamanca, Ellicottville area. I say hometown Olean's just what a half hour away, right? Um, but I guess it was, I really don't know, uh, as far back as I can remember, 
my parents will tell you that I loved Gumby when I was like three or four and that I associated the G and the green. <laughs> I, I think that's, I think, I don't know. I think that's more urban legend. There's a, it's a point of contention, but you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's Brett Favre. I mean, how could you not gravitate toward somebody like that as a little kid? I mean, and you know, the injuries he's playing through that gunslinger mentality, you might, Gonna come out of a twenty-point hole and win, or you might give the game away. It was uh, it was easy to kind of gravitate toward him, but you know, I'll say you know, once I kind of um, started you know covering the team for those uh, for the pack report, the Shawano leader doing those internships, you know, you kind of lose all that fandom. I mean, you have to. It, right. it was really night and day. Um, you just learn to really love the story instead of the team, and and you kind of make that transition, which which really helped because you know then I ended up covering the team for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel for four and a half years. Now you brought up a great point. When you become a writer, a professional writer, and you know, you do it for a living, you have to drop that fandom that we have. You know, you grow up, you root for a team, you're a little bit of all, like you said, you grew up a Packers fan. What's that adjustment like as, as you have to drop that fandom? I had a good conversation with Sal Capaccio about this a couple weeks ago. He grew up a big Bills fan, but then, you know, he gets a job at WGR and now he's the Bills beat reporter. You kind of got to drop being a fan and you got to learn to be an objective reporter What's that process like? Is it easier said than done? To be honest, it really wasn't that difficult because it's a job, right? I mean, it's it's what you wake up to do every day. I mean, you have to tell a good story, and a good story might not be exactly what a fan wants to hear. I mean, I, I guess, for example, I mean, when I was covering the team, there were just so many playoff meltdowns. I mean, that Seattle NFC Championship game when know, 18 different plays have to go wrong for Green Bay to lose that game. It was an amazing story. I mean, to be in that locker room and see Brandon Bostic, who botched the onside kick, you know, going through his phone, looking at God knows what it's, it's, it, it's the kind of story you love to write, but obviously if you're a fan of the team, I mean, you're, you're gouging your eyes out. So I, I was able to kind of make that switch a long time. I mean, doing those internships really helped and in, in being out there for the one summer was when Brett Favre had retired. Um, they hand the team over to Aaron Rodgers, and then lo and behold, Brett Favre wants to play again. So, you know, we're at the airport, and, you know, tracking his plane landed at Austin Straubel, and it's just all kinds of craziness. I mean, Ted Thompson's getting booed at uh, the shareholders meeting. It was, it was unreal. So it was like a real baptism by fire. Just kind of get thrown into that as a 20-year-old and um, just kind of being on your own out there. It was it was really actually easy to make that change. What I'll say, though, is, I mean, we all get into this business because we love sports, because we have favorite teams and favorite players and, and build up that knowledge base. So, you know, covering the team on a day-to-day basis, it was really easy to relate to the fans and their passion. And it's different in Green Bay. I mean, I loved it because the fans, they feel like your boss. They feel like your editor. Like you just can't give them enough. You write a story about the fourth string tight end and, you know, they, they want every word. So, I mean, that really got me going every day to tap into that passion and, and to have the knowledge base to kind of think back to a random game in 1994 and a random player, I mean, it helps you kind of, you know, build a credibility up with your readers. Now, you didn't go directly, like, from college to cover an NFL team beat. There were pit stops along the way as well. You had a short stint, I believe, at, at the Fayetteville Observer, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Good memory. Yep. Um, it was it was a short stay. Um yeah, I guess it was, you know, covering high school sports for the Fayetteville Observer in North Carolina for, I want to say, like eight months, seven months. And then 
came back to the Buffalo News, which was great. I had interned there in college. But yeah, then from there, I just wasn't really on a beat per se. Um, and then the opportunity to cover the Packers kind of came up out of nowhere when, when Greg Bedard left. So just kind of jumped at that. Before we get to the Packers, I do remember you being back at the Buffalo News in 2010. Obviously, because I remembered your name from scout.com. You wrote an amazing story. It wasn't football related. I don't remember the date. It was sometime in like either 2010 or 2011. It was about Paul Harris from Niagara Falls before the NBA draft. Weren't you with him around draft time? I remember it being an incredible story. You that was you did that, correct? Yeah, man, that's a great poll, Pat. Holy cow. Uh, yeah, that would have been right at that little period there before Green Bay. I, I think I just followed him around for a little bit because here's like, like, every, like we all remember in Western New York. I mean, this guy was a phenom. I mean, if they didn't have that rule or you know, implement the rule where he had to go to college for at least a year, he would have gone straight to the pros mm-hmm. and he was really highly touted, but, um, you know, have obviously had a good college career. And then here he was in the D league for the main red claws. So just kind of went to a game out. I think it was an eerie PA when they played them and followed him and his life and where he came from. And, you know, it is pretty remarkable. Paul Harris carved out a pretty good basketball career for himself in the Philippines. I mean, he's like a star over there. Right. And it's, not easy to hang around as long as he has. So kudos to him. You went from the news and this is where you did get your break and you ended up covering the Packers. How did that come about? Take us inside how you went from, from Buffalo to, to Milwaukee. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, it was great to be at the Buffalo news, you know, being from the area. And obviously I ended up coming back to the Buffalo news, you know, in five years to cover the bills. It's just unbelievable people there. You've had some of them on this, on this podcast, just can't say enough. So uh, but to that initial move to uh, to Milwaukee, I, you know, really, it just was a job opening. It was posted online. I think my, I remember talking to my parents about it, and they're like, oh, Ty, you got to go for this. I mean, this is the team that you followed your whole life. You had the internships out there. Um, you know, you'd be stupid not to apply. And, you know, obviously I applied, but it was just like a year out of college. I just assumed, you know, they might go with somebody with more experience. And just picture your resume kind of being lost in stacks upon stacks on a sports editor's desk. But yeah, it helped. I think Lori nickel, I'll never forget. God bless her. She, she covered the Packers out there and I had met her years ago when I was maybe 12 or 13 at a Packers fan fest. And me and my dad are doing like a play by play thing at Lambeau where you can like reenact the Packer games. <laughs> I remember she interviewed us for a story back then we kept in touch in the college and, you know, just talking about the business and my career. And I think she kind of followed my work. Um, I wrote a couple big stories in Fayetteville. I'll never forget Mike Brill, a high school coach. I think he had like 15 or 16 players die in his 28 years of coaching. Just unreal. Wow. So I think maybe that's a story that they, that they read in Lori's good word. Anyways, all it takes is a few dominoes to fall and, and you get the eyeballs on your resume and your clips. Mike Davis, a sports editor you know, unbelievable debt of gratitude to him. Just unbelievable guy. Um, gave me a call and we talked about it. Went out there for the interview and yeah, got, got to work with Bob McGann and Tom Silverstein and cover the Packers, man. It was, it was unbelievable. It was really a, a, a great place to live. You talked about growing up a Brett Favre fan. And then one day you're sitting in front of him, interviewing him one-on-one. Gotta be nerve wracking. A little bit. I mean, professionalism aside, you got to have some nerves. How do you not have nerves? It's got to be in the back of your mind. Yo, man, I idolized this guy growing up. I'm, I'm a fan of his. Now it's my job, and I'm sitting here, and, I, and I'm talking to him. I'm interviewing him. 
got to be a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like we become so desensitized in sports writing, and it's true. Like, you don't really, not really blown away by anything because you just you meet these people, you see them as human beings. I mean, they they're dealing with things just like everybody is day to day. Uh, but that was the one time where it kind of gives you a pause and it kind of hits you like, you know, holy shit. I mean, right. I, I, can, I don't know if we can swear on this oh, podcast. You can Sorry, but swear away, dude, do it up. <laughs> All right, good. Good to know. <laughs> Just like, holy shit, this is Brett Favre. And it, I think what played into it was, you know, at the time he hadn't really spoken yet. There was still some unknown, some animosity between him, the fan base, you know, the following year is when he was going to be enshrined into the team's hall of fame. But he didn't really know how he'd be received because he was with the Vikings. I mean, he, he's walking out on the Lambeau field as a Viking and booed by the same fans you know, that he brought so many great memories for for 16 years. So there was just uh, a lot of unknown, I think. And then he, the timing was just right, I guess, you know, for him to look ahead, reflect, talk about everything. I mean, we got into, you know, concussions, CTE, um, the Packers, the Vikings, why he decided to keep playing again and again and again. I think that anybody could, could relate with it, that this guy just couldn't get enough. I mean, football was like a drug, and every time yeah. he, thought he was off of it, he had to keep playing. So it was pretty unbelievable, man. I mean, it was it was one of those things where, when I, you know, you set up with a gatekeeper and um, you think you have a half hour at Brett Favre's house, but he's such a storyteller and just such a genuine guy who loves to just bullshit that it turned into three plus hours. You know, it's, you know, and the thing that's cool about Brett Favre is if he wants to know about you, it's not like, you know, he's looking at himself as, you know, some King, some celebrity that's just going to sit there and talk about himself for three hours. Like he was asking where I grew up. And once I said, I went to school at Syracuse, lo and behold, he's talking about one of his buddies who, you know, lives in Syracuse and has like black Russian boar that they used to hunt in the <laughs> woods when it was snowy. It's like, it's like of course, yeah, that's you know, he's cool. got a story about hunting black Russian boar with his friend in Syracuse. It doesn't seem like he does a lot of interviews, but you're right. I mean, when he does do an interview, he's very engaging in it. Definitely. De- definitely was. Once you sit down with a guy, you know, he's not going to you know, turn his nose at any question. He's going to be very honest, very open. Um, and that's how he was, man. It was de- definitely uh, one of those things you'll never forget. So you go from an organization, covering an organization that, you know, it's a traditional powerhouse. You come back to Buffalo, you know, your hometown paper. And up until this past year, I mean, let's, let's be honest. This team's been a, a disaster. <laughs> you come at 2015, you come back. They're in the midst, I believe it's what year, maybe 15, 14, 15 of the playoff drought. It's like a circus that it feels, I know it's a job, no matter what team you cover, it's a job at the end of the day, but then a different covering a team that was like that, that it went 15 years, no freaking playoffs as opposed to covering the Packers, you know, we're expected to contend for a title every year. Got to be a big difference just in everything, the atmosphere, the vibe in the mm-hmm. locker room, everything. It's, it is different, you know, because the expectations are different. You know, what I always tell folks is, you know, you do a, a story on a Packers game and, you know, the first year I covered them, I think they were 15 and one. So they were like 11 and 0, 12 and 0. And, you know, you do a sto- you know, you do a post game chat for two hours and, 75% of the um, the questions submitted are, are like negative fans are mad that the defense gave up 300 yards in this win. This is a problem. Like <laughs> fire crazy. Dom capers, like end of the world. <laughs> so there's that, like there's this expectation that they're going to be in the playoffs every year. And the fans are, are very, can be very 
loving, but very demanding. And with Buffalo, it was kind of different in that I think a lot of fans are searching and hunting and seeking that silver lining. So, you know, it's it's like, okay, they lost the game, but guess what? Tyrod Taylor on third and 16, he spun away from a guy and got 18 yards. And that's the few, like, right. a, lot, a lot of fans like to cling to that, that hope, that optimism. But, you know, to be honest, it was really similar because the, the fandom is just so rabid and they, they fans and readers, they, they soak up every word and they constantly want, you know, blog posts, podcasts, feature stories, every analysis. And as long as that hunger is there, it makes your job so enjoyable, man. I mean, I loved it. It was like, you never could give full enough content. And, uh, it was, it was a fun year. Granted, it was just, you know, the one season it was, but it was a crazy season. Rex Ryan's first year. I mean, you could write a book on that, all the, the crazy stuff that happened with him from eating dog biscuits and jumping out of planes to, uh, you know, the half pregnant defense by the next off season. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I have a podcast now. And at the time, a couple of years ago, I didn't really listen to many podcasts. I didn't care for them at the time, but you and you and Tim did have a podcast and it was actually really good. <laughs> done with, done with Graham. What was it called again? It was a good podcast. It was done with Graham, but yes. it should have been like done with Graham with eight beers apiece. Yes. It was fun because, you know, by, by, by the end of it, we had a few in us. Yeah. I was going to say, done it, taping at a bar every week. <laughs> but it was good. I liked it. The, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I can't say enough about TG. I mean, just awesome human being, friend, um, and an even better writer. He's just, just unbelievable. That was that might have been like the most enjoyable part of that job, doing that podcast every week with Tim, man. We had a riot. <laughs> All right, so you worked for the Buffalo News for a year, and then comes the Bleacher Report. How did that come about? Yeah, it was it was really unexpected. Um, you know, everything was going really great at the Buffalo News, you know, covering the Bills. Being able to do Sunday takeout stories was, was definitely, you know, in terms of, uh, they said I love the podcast, which I did, but, but really that's kind of what I've always loved the most uh, about the job is getting able, being able to sit down with folks and kind of see what makes them tick beyond the game, beyond the field. Um, so I think just kind of doing some of those stories, it was able to catch Bleach Report's eye. Um, they reached out to me that off season about this position to do that exclusively, you know, just do feature stories. They were looking to expand their coverage and kind of heard them out and got a feel for VR and uh, the folks there. And, and gosh, it's, uh, it's been great, man. I've been able to do exactly that. Just really you know, take the time to dive into the, the longer form stories exclusively. And you go from operating very much on a day-to-day schedule and, and kind of pumping out that content day-to-day to now really, parachuting into different cities and, and trying to tell original stories on the NFL scale, you know, across the whole league. So it's, it was very different. It was a very big change, but no, really good change. I I've been loving it. Great boss. Kyle McCullough is exceptional. Jake Leonard, being able to work with those guys and, and tell some of the stories that we have and and chip away at them. It's been fun. I mean, I think the encouraging thing is that even in 2018 where everything is kind of Twitterized and Facebooked and, everything's kind of packaged in this fast food kind of, you know, process. And, and I get it. Every, everybody wants the, the Instagram post or the 140 character news item, but I think that people still enjoy reading. I hope they do because the numbers seem to bear that out and, and we're able to tell those stories. I couldn't agree more. And as we transition into a little bit of NFL talk, let's start. I just read today. You had an awesome story on the honey badger. I read it this morning. That's a fascinating guy. I know you traveled down to Arizona to do the story. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Went down to Arizona. Um, 
now with him and somebody else, we'll have another story coming out uh, next week. But in terms of the honey badger, uh, I mean, here's somebody who, gosh, I mean, you talk to anybody from the New Orleans area when he was 12, 13 years old, the guy was a legend. I mean, he had the tuxedo on with the Burger King crown being hoisted around. I mean, people looked up to him ever since he can remember. I mean, he just did things on a football field that nobody his size can do. Hence the honey badger, you know, nickname taking on seven lions at a time when he's a honey badger. So, you know, he's this legend goes to LSU, you know, the college football world by storm. And then is get kicked out of LSU because he can't stop smoking. I mean, he's the first to admit it, that he just kind of messed up and it was all self-inflicted. Still gets his NFL shot and takes the NFL by storm, tears his ACL, tears his ACL, suffers a shoulder injury, and now his career is kind of at that crossroads again. So I just kind of wanted to see where he is mentally, like right now, what's his mindset after everything he's been through. And he opened up a lot more than I thought he would. Yes, and he, he really did. looked back to, yeah, yeah, you know, all the way back to not having his parents and, and kind of how the whole Honey Badger thing started and, and why he was angry and how he had to channel that anger onto the field when his dad's in, in prison for murder for life. So um, I, I was really surprised that he opened up the way he did. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and he, he said that last year, he, I mean, he played like he was playing to not get hurt. Yeah, yeah, that surprised me too. And, you know, I get it. You know, you have all these injuries and, and you don't feel 100%. You're, you're going to be a little hesitant. You're going to be thinking in your head, how do I make this tackle? How do I approach this guy instead of just going? I mean, he's been the honey badger. He's been this animal because yeah, he didn't balls overthink. Yeah. Because he, totally, totally. Balls to the wall. So I really take him at his word when he says, look, this year, you know, it, it's going to be no holds barred. He, he's just going to go. He's not going to think. And I think the Texans got a bargain. Yeah, I agree. Now, Moving on to a couple other teams of free agency. I'm a fan of what the Jets have done over the past month, especially on defense with Tremaine Johnson and Avery Williamson. I like those two chips. They bring back McCown. They get a couple guys from Cleveland to help with the offense. And then, of course, they move up to third in the draft. Who do you think's having a really good offseason so far? Besides the Jets. Or maybe you don't agree with me about the Jets. I, I, I do agree with you. Because it's like, all right, you didn't get Kirk Cousins, um, which is probably a long shot after Kirk Cousins, and you can get a lot of money anywhere. Why, why would you go there? You're going to go to the Vikings and, and win a Super Bowl. But their plan B, and I, you know, I know they were kind of skewered for that trade, but that's just what you have to do. I mean, do you really just want to live in that purgatory of drafting the Geno Smiths in the second rounds and reaching for the Christian Hackenbergs and, you know, going with Josh McCown, who, you know, every teammate who's ever played with him loves the guy, but you know, he's Josh McCown. You're not going to win a Super Bowl with him. Right. You have to, you have to be ballsy. You have to make a move up high in that first round and get a top level talent because look at all the starting quarterbacks across the NFL. Yeah. You got Tom Brady. Yeah. You got Dak Prescott, Russell Wilson, outside of those three, how many Super Bowl caliber quarterbacks were ever drafted, you know, beyond the top half of the first round. I mean, the numbers tell you, you have to move up that high if you have any aspirations to win a Super Bowl. So that's what they did. You know, who knows if they dropped the right guy. I mean, that's the tough part is, making the right pick, but at least they've given themselves a chance. And I would love them in a fly on the wall at one bill's drive and hear Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean when they saw that trade go yeah. down. I'm sure there are a few F bombs. <laughs> I'm sure there was. No, I'm down here in Florida at the time and the Tampa Bay Bucks were a huge flop last year. Big time flop. They were supposed to be good and they, and they weren't, they went out, they signed Vinnie Curry, they get Ryan Jensen, the center, and then they just traded for JPP. Clearly they're in win now mode or, or else for Kirk Cutter. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, because it, that was a team that, you know, was kind of an underrated Super Bowl pick last year. And mm-hmm. I, I, they can make all these moves. They can sign the Vinny Curries and get the JPPs and make all the little moves that they want. But it comes down to Jameis Winston, right? I mean, if, sure. is Jameis Winston going to, is he going to ascend like we thought he was going to in 2017? Or is he going to be this weird finger licking, got to eat the W strange leader <laughs> interception machine that we saw last year. I mean, that was just such a regression in every way that folks didn't see coming. So I mean, the skills are there, the size, the arm strength, um, you know, as, as weird as that video was, I, I do think the players who gravitate toward the guy, he has some leadership qualities. He, he just has to rebound. It, it all comes down to him. All right. So Johnny Manziel reportedly had a good workout the other day in front of about 12 teams. Do you think anyone's going to take a chance on him this year? Boy, good question. I'm going to say no. I, I think the damage is, is kind of done there. That teams, uh, you know, they don't want to bring on the hoopla, the circus, everything that would come with Johnny Manziel, much like they wouldn't want to bring on everything that would you know, come with a Tim Tebow or something like that. But but also, I mean, just skills-wise, he kind of is what he is. And I hate the Baker Mayfield-Johnny Manziel comparisons because, you know, Manziel was electric in college, but it was all in improvisation. It was almost a hundred percent exclusive, just improvisation, you know, shooting from the hip, running all over the place. He couldn't really run an offense from a structured standpoint in a pocket like Baker Mayfield can. And I don't know if that's something that can just be trained and fixed and, and all of that. And we haven't even talked about whether or not he's really come full circle as a person and cleaned up the act off the field. I think that there's going to be a lot of skepticism because you know, here, there he was at the NFL Combine at the podium with tons of media around, and he's saying the same thing in every meeting with every NFL team, saying he's a changed man, and he's matured, and he's learned from his er- the errors of his ways and all of that, and he didn't do a dang thing to change. So, you know, I think the teams have to weigh that with, well, how much of it was the mental illness that he opened up on? So many variables on and off the field, so many other quarterbacks and options the teams have. I would really be shocked. So let's turn to the Bills. What's your thought process in regards to the Buffalo Bills in this draft? I, give me a good answer. I change my mind every goddamn day. Every day I think that, that they should do something, and then the next day I change my mind. Convince me what the Bills need to do with this draft. Please. Oh, man. Well, I tell you what, they've had a really good offseason. I, I love everything that Brandon Bean has done. Um, he has really gutted this franchise of the terrible contracts and the terrible draft picks that he kind of took on. I mean, we, we could spend hours talking about it, but I mean, from the Cordy Glenn contract to Marcel Darius to, I mean, doing something with, with Tyrod Taylor, probably a year late, but kudos to them for moving on and, and finding somebody to give them anything for Tyrod Taylor and somebody to give them anything for Cordy Glenn, because just speaking of Cordy Glenn, I mean, I heard a lot of really negative things about him behind the scenes, you know, just, just people in the building just saw, a player kind of checking out after he signed that contract, which you always worry about. Um, yeah, interesting. To, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, you know, not you know, really, really unsolicited. You know, folks reaching out to me, almost like happy to see him gone. So to move up that high in the draft, now you're in striking range. Now you can make another trade, get in that top six, and have a shot at one of those quarterbacks. Unfortunately, it, it, it's not going to be Sam Darnold or Josh Rosen because obviously the Jets moved on up the Giants kind of maneuvering the way they have, that tells you that they're probably looking at Chubb. I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't think they can get that Giants pick now because they're probably going to stay put and, and take Chubb. And that, 
maybe you move up to six or yeah, like seven, six, and you have a shot at Baker Mayfield, who I really like. It's all about the quarterback, and you know, if you knew what the Bills were going to do and who was going to fall, then gosh, I mean, we we wouldn't be doing this podcast. But <laughs> they've got to get somebody in that upper echelon, and I like AJ McCarron a lot. I think that was a great move for them to wait, let everybody overspend on everybody else, and take AJ McCarron because he can. I think you can win with him. You can win if you build a deeper team around him and a defense around him. But you know, long term, you have to draft somebody. I agree. And see, but this is where I keep going back and forth. One side of me is like, all right, man, all in, man. Get this fucking guy all in. Go get your quarterback. The other half of me is like, you know, I really like what the Bills did with their draft last year when they came away with uh, Dawkins and Milano, not first round guys. And of course, Trey White in the first. Those are three really good draft picks. I feel like they got these picks this year. If they can go get three, four more good guys, you're really building a good core of guys that are going to be around for three to five years together. I don't know how I feel about it. Let's say they do go up to maybe seven. Do you really want to go get the fourth best quarterback off the board and give up maybe three first round picks to move up to seven? It's just something that I keep struggling with every day. Now you ask me tomorrow, I'll be like, yeah, give away the farm. I want Josh Rosen or I want Baker Mayfield. You know what I mean? It's just one of those fascinating things where I just can't make up my goddamn mind. So I cannot wait for the draft. If for no other reason, that we can talk about things that have happened instead of speculating on stuff where we really got no idea. And and we won't have to hear, you know, on NFL Network, uh, everybody gushing over Sam Darnold for throwing a football in the rain, right? You don't have to put up with that nonsense. My God, oh my God, he threw a football and it's raining out of you. Oh my God, unbelievable. (laughs) Crazy, dude. Listen, I I asked last week, I had Jay Skirsky of the Buffalo News on, and I said, Jay, give me a big bold Bills prediction for 2018. And he came strong, man. He goes, AJ McCarron will make the Pro Bowl. So I'm going to put you on the spot. I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm putting you on the spot here now. It could be something draft-related, player-related, team record, anything you want. Give me something now in March so I can go back nine months from now and make fun of you for it. Give me something now, Bills-related, big, bold prediction for 2018. I love it. All right. Just to piggyback off of your great point there on whether you stay put and you keep, you know, adding to your core or kind of mortgage that core for a quarterback. I I think the prediction would be that they do the latter, that they move up, they get a quarterback. I don't know if it's Josh Allen, Baker Mayfield, but it's going to be one of those top four or five guys. I I think that they're going to be decisive for a change because they have the ammo and because look, they know Trey White's great. Maybe he should have been the defensive rookie of the year but you missed out on Patrick Mahomes. There are people in that building who really, really liked Patrick Mahomes. That's they're going to be point. keeping an eye on him for the rest of his career. I don't think they're going to want to make that mistake. Again, they know how important the quarterback position is. And from the very on top, all the way down, they've been studying this current um, group of quarterbacks in this class incredibly closely, maybe closer than, than any other team behind the scenes. So I, I think that they're going to take advantage. I don't know which player it is, but I say they move up and they draft a quarterback high. You know what? You just sold me. I love that point about Mahomes. That just sold me right there. Oh. I'm done wavering. Thank you. you <laughs> I'm not. I'm done. I'm done wavering. You just sold me. Let's end this. I'll tell you what. Let's end this with a little, and I'm stealing this from Michael K. I, I do it every week now. A little mini lightning round. Just going to ask you a couple. I'm going to ask you a couple random questions and just pop out whatever you think. All right? Perfect. Favorite childhood athlete? Favorite. Uh, let's go Glenn Rice. Glenn Rice, Charlotte Hornets, man. Uh, next question. 
What's your obsession with the 1990s Charlotte Hornets? <laughs> All right. I, I've been asked, Mike Schoep was asking me this a couple of weeks ago on GR. So I, I, it kind of started, So this is going to make me feel really old, but early to mid nineties, when you were a fan of any sports team and you wanted to know how they did the night before, you couldn't go on the internet. You know, you were, you were waiting for a highlight on sports center with no bottom line. And you're flipping over to CNN headline news because they did have a bottom line. And the excitement to see that Charlotte Hornet score come across the bottom of the screen. Was, I can't even begin to describe like how awesome that was. I don't know how I got into them. I mean, maybe it was Alonzo Morning and Larry Johnson, the uniforms, the starter jackets, all that they stuff. Were but, fun. Uh, yeah, man, they were fun. They were, they were a riot. I mean, it was an easy team to love. So yeah, between that and, I, I still remember my dad when the internet first came out, he laid out like a packet of statistics at NFL and NBA and some Hornet stats on the couch one morning. And I remember my mind just being blown. Oh my God, look at these <laughs> numbers. Like what, what is, look at the access we have here. So it was easy to fall in love with that team at that time. If you couldn't be a sports writer or work in sports in any capacity, what would you want to be? Oh man, good question. Oh, so no sports at all. Nothing. Because the easy cop out would be, you know, being a coach. Definitely want to do that at some point. Um, you know, I'll say chiropractor. There was a brief period. I thought about being a chiropractor in high school, just because playing high school football, I got drilled in the back the week before we played at the Ralph and my back was all screwed up and Craig Lizjack, all your listeners out there, if any back issues, go to Craig Lizjack in Salamaca, New York, unbelievable. The magic man, our family calls him cracked me into place, was able to play in the next game and we beat Mabel Grove. So that week alone made me think, you know what? I could really help people being a chiropractor. And then I started researching, like if you break somebody's back, you know, one wrong crack and yeah, your, your, your life is done. So I, I didn't really feel like diving into that science. Favorite place to have chicken wings. And let me preface this. You're a Western New York guy, so I know you're not going to give a stupid answer like Duff's or Anchor Bar. So what's your favorite place to have chicken wings? Great. It's Elmo's, man. It's Elmo's in, uh, in Amherst or Getzville, I should say. Um, on a little strip mall, you know, you got to You got to go there. I, I mean, did. Uh, I did for the first oh, time. Have. Yeah, right, Tim, you know it. I talked to Tim and he recommended it. I went there. I was back home in Buffalo over Christmas. And we went there for wings and it was awesome. So I completely agree with you there. Good choice. Speaking of choice, your adult beverage of choice. Oh my God. We got to go local again. Let's go resurgence brewery. And you can't go wrong with any beer at resurgence. They're all incredible. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to actually give you a few. I mean, resurgence, big ditch and Hamburg brewery. The the brewery game is strong right now in Western New York, man. We, you know, Gina and I have kind of been hitting up different ones every other week or so um, just awesome people running the joints and, and really good beer. Favorite non-sports thing to watch on TV. Um, hmm, Always sunny in Philadelphia. No doubt. That's oh, the yeah. best show of all time. I'm convinced. Uh, oh my God. I just can't, cannot get enough. I mean, we could talk about every episode here, just incredible characters. And you know, what's unbelievable about that show. The characters were so well-defined, like instantly. Like you knew Charlie was illiterate and Dennis was full of himself <laughs> and Mac was a badass yeah. and, and, and D was a tall old bird, you know, from day one, they were defined and they, I don't know how they keep a straight face in that show. Every line just, just cracks me up. So 
it's always sunny. But right now, I've been in the bar rescue too, man. John Taffer's incredible. Yeah, I, I agree about Sunny. I, I've only watched one or two episodes of Bar Rescue. What's your favorite movie? Favorite movie? I mean, it's The Godfather, and I mean, I, I don't think I don't think it's even close. One and two. Second last question: Who has better taste in music? You or the future misses? <laughs> you better say the right answer because she's probably going to be pissed. Uh, if you don't. We, we had this conversation yesterday about like the best genre of all time. And it was a good debate. I was trying to make the case just for you know, hard rock, ACDC, that it, it just never gets old, that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, she put it well, 90s, anything 90s. I mean, Hootie and the Blowfish came on, the Goo Goo Dolls came on. You, you hear a 90s song and it takes you back to a time and place Every single time. So, yes, the, the missus is right there. All right. Last question. You ain't old, but you are, you're old enough. Give me your favorite 80s artist or group. You know what? I, I don't think I'm that old. I don't think I can answer that. I, I, 1987, I, I, don't think I, I don't think I can go back that far, man. Yes, come on. I, I don't agree with you. Give me ACDC <laughs> the 80s. 80s you like ACDC. I need, I need an official answer so I can keep it on the checklist for future guests. Okay. All right. Well, let's, I just wasn't around, you know, at their peak, I wasn't alive. But, you know, listen, going back to, to Who Made Who and Back in Black and, you know, all the albums in that era, it's ACDC. Absolutely. There you go. Okay. Tim came at me with uh, Violent Femmes and Jay Skursky went with uh, Michael Jackson for Bad. Which is late '80s, I guess. So technically, I guess that counts. <laughs> Tyler, uh, you know what? I got a hot, I got a hot take for you. Michael Jackson, a little overrated. Uh oh, damn, dude, you're coming in hot. That's hot. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not really. I don't really have a justification or an explanation. Just gonna let that hang in the air there. Well, all right, we're gonna let that simmer. <laughs> we're definitely gonna let that simmer. Listen, Tyler, I, I know you're a busy guy, man. I, like I said, I've been trying for weeks to track you down. You, you got a lot going on, so. <laughs> I really appreciate it coming on. Pleasure's all here, Pat. Man, I loved it. And, uh, man, you're doing a great job with this. We'll we'll keep listening. Thanks. I appreciate you, buddy. Have a good one. You too. Pat with us. To the victor belongs to sports. Why don't you get the fuck out of here before I shove your quotations book up your fat fucking ass? The customer is usually a moron and an asshole. Okay, a simple wrong would have done just fine, but then... After hitting leadoff last week, Tone Pucks relegated back to his second fiddle spot on the podcast. What's going on, dude? Thank God, man. There's a lot of pressure last week, dude. This is where I belong. Right at the end here, my mother knows where to go to find, you know, my segment. I had to walk her through it last week and shit. (laughs) Pain in the ass. So. We've spent so much time doing our segment, and for good reason, talking to Buffalo Bills and football. I want to expand our wings a little bit this week. Let's do a little pop culture. I want you to name me your three most rewatchable movies. Now, I'm going to preface this. I saw this on Twitter and just thought it was an awesome topic. And I said, you know yeah, what? This is a good, this is a good spot. Let, let's bring this up on the podcast. Name me your three most rewatchable movies. Well, I, I saw it on Twitter. I, I didn't play along. I, I rarely do. Um, I didn't play along either. But it did, it, you know, it did, uh, you know, spur some thoughts. 
you're going to think I'm full of shit, uh, to tell you the truth, with with a couple of them. But I, I've got an animated movie. I've got a superhero movie. And then I've got a uh, kind of a tie, uh, you know, during what I think was one of the greatest uh, writing and directing stretches of anyone in history. Do you want, do you want to take a guess at my animated movie? Uh, frozen. Incorrect. The original Muppet movie. I think that is an absolute fucking masterpiece, man. <laughs> I'm not even kidding you. Uh, you know, I can, I can sing, you know, the electric teeth and, and the mayhem band, you know, I can sing that song. I can do moving right along. I can do Ralph and Kermit. Hope that something better comes along. That movie is fantastic. I can watch it all day long. The cameos are incredible. Steve Martin, Dom DeLuise, the, the, just can't even do justice to the to the list of cameos in that. It's an incredible movie. My superhero movie, I'm I'm staying old school here. The original Superman. I popped it in just the other night, man. Not bad. It's just fantastic. Hackman is incredible as Lex Luthor. Christopher Reeve as Superman. Out of the box pick. Fantastic. The very first scene where the helicopter's falling off the top of the Daily Planet. And he changes in the in the uh, in the revolving doors and flies up and catches the helicopter. And Lois Lane says, "You got me. Who's got you?" I love that shit. And then and then Tarantino's back to back masterpieces of true romance and Pulp Fiction. All day, every day, I could watch those. Uh, I could watch those flicks on a loop. The dialogue's incredible. I don't think we'll ever see a. a uh, a writing or, or directorial run like uh, uh, like Tarantino had, you know, in that uh, in that decade. And those are those are my two favorites of his. So, of course, I uh, I've given you a long winded four, but. Uh, well, I don't agree my- with any of yours, but I do respect them. I respect the fact that you didn't go out and just name them three most popular movies that everyone's going to instantly recognize. I guarantee you a lot of people listening probably haven't even seen the Muppet movie. So I'll give you credit for that. Now I'm going with three that well, at least two of the three are, are very popular. I really don't care. I didn't say name the three most rewatchable movies that aren't popular. Number one is Grease. I can, I've watched that probably 300 times and I'll probably watch it 300 more. I really don't need to say much more about it. Everyone knows. So that's one. Number two from 1987, Can't Buy Me Love. Not the, not the newer version. I'm talking about the old original with McDreamy in it. I don't know why I love that movie so much. I maybe I was that nerd who wanted to pay some girl to be my boyfriend or girlfriend. Or Absolutely, something. I, I uh, have no idea. That movie's fantastic. I still can't believe. I still mourn Cindy Mancini's death daily. Yeah, but you know what? I didn't like her in the movie. She she turned on him after the college boy came back and wanted nothing to do with her anymore. And and Patrick Dempsey was popular. She turned on him. She embarrassed him in front of everybody. But she only told half the story. She didn't tell about how your boy saved up $1,000 and gave it to her to help pay for a suede jacket that she pretty much stole from her mother and ruined. All the things that could have made him a good guy, she didn't say any of that shit. She was hurt, man. I mean, she took it out on him. Well, because he's the one who hurt her. They, I mean, they were sitting there in the car. They were looking through the, the, the telescope thing up at the stars. 
you know, and he's she's thinking that he's ready to, you know, to make a, make a real kiss move. And he goes and says, how are we going to, you know, plan our official breakup tomorrow? That was that was crushing. I agree to an extent. But come on, man. No, sorry. She didn't have to do him like that at that party in front of everyone. I, he got a little too big for his bridges for a while. Got a little cocky. But you know what? That's part of life. She did not need to embarrass him in front of that. And she didn't say all, she only said the bad things about him. She didn't say any of the good things. So fuck her. I'm not, I'm not happy she's dead, but McDreamy got done wrong in that movie. I've anyway, I've watched that movie more times than I, than I can even remember. And the last movie, and I know it's probably not the most popular Rocky the most, but for me, it's Rocky three because everything happens in that movie. You get the worst Rocky. That is not the the worst worst fucking movie. How is that the it's worst Rocky? The worst, it's the worst Rocky. It is not. I don't even count. Like, Are you five. kidding me? So much happens in that movie. Oh. You get a new character, Clever Lang. You get Apollo back. Mickey fucking dies. There's so much that happens. And he goes to California. Now he's he forms an alliance with Apollo. Come on. You're crazy. That was not the worst movie. That was the best Rocky. It was the most action. Hulk Hogan's in that movie. That's the That was the mainstream Rocky. That was the best Rocky of all of them. At worst, it was maybe the second best. And I've watched that movie probably more than I've ever watched any other movie in my life. I can't believe you just said that was the worst Rocky. You got it. I loved kidding. four. I loved four. Four, was, four mean, had I, the best soundtrack. I loved four. Now, if we were talking soundtracks, I would play four over and over for life. But in terms of movie, look at what happened. You don't think Mickey happening was one of the most iconic movie moments ever when Mickey died? Uh, I, I mean, you know. Dude, he's defeated. He, he's down in light. He's down and out. Apollo brings him to LA. He's training him. He just doesn't have it in him. Then that famous beach scene where Adrian gets him fired up and motivates him. Come on. That movie was amazing. It was the it was an amazing movie. It was the best Rocky. I don't care what I'm watching it tonight. I'm you know what? I'm gonna give it a, I'm gonna give it its due. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna check it out tonight. I'm gonna check it out. Let's end with this. I just, I, you know, it's like ahead. it's yeah, we could go on forever. We already have at this point. I know, man. What the? I mean, we usually like we talk about football, and we're like, because we all got all kinds of things to say. We're like, oh, let's keep it, uh, you know, to this and that. And now we're just talking about bullshit. And I think we've gone twice as long as we do when we're talking. <laughs> we have, and we've rambled. But you know what? We were due for this. We were due for a pretty shitty segment. So let's go all in now and finish it off with this. <laughs> <laughs> let's just go all in. Let's we just take. We were a pretty shitty segment. I mean, you're like <laughs> we were telling me. Like award-winning fucking shit. <laughs> We've been way overdue for this type of segment where people are saying, why am I listening to this bullshit? So let's go all in and let's finish it with this. I got a music question for you. Name an album in any genre, any era, that you think is 100% perfect, or at least close to perfect enough where you wouldn't skip over one single track on that album. I think everybody are, you know, kind of kind of knows what this album is. Uh you know, for them, for themselves. I, I, I think we, I think this is a topic of conversation, uh, just in, in, in general, uh, kick, kicking stuff around with, uh, with your peoples and stuff like that. I'm, I'm going to guess that yours is thriller. No, everything, every single freaking music related thing with you goes back to that pedophile. <laughs> um, mine, mine is, mine is licensed to L man. I just, it's, it's uh, I can't hate on that. It's licensed to ill. Just Beastie Boys all day long. 
Nirvana's Nevermind, you know, comes close in that uh, in that mix. The, the 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 problem, you know, the funny thing about both those albums, you take you take both those albums. Uh, you may not know the the Nirvana one that well, but the songs that launched both those albums, "Smells Like Teen Spirit" and "Fight for Your Right to Party," may have ended up being by the time all was said and done. You know, some of true fans of those two bands' least favorite songs off those albums. But, uh, you know, those were the ones that, uh, you know, that catapulted the uh, um, the group. So you can't hate on them too much. But I'm interested now, though, if yours isn't if yours isn't Thriller. Um, well, I'll, I'll prep. It's not. But it, the only reason why it's not is because I just said that would be too obvious. Yeah, it's, it, it is. It would be Thriller. But I didn't. I didn't pick Thriller for this segment only because that's just too obvious. I picked an album alongside it though from that time frame. Prince's Purple Rain to me. That album, it, it's immaculate. There's not a song on that. I mean, I like some more than others, but there's not one song on there that I hate that I'll skip over. And that side two, by the way, of that of that album is one of the best I've ever heard. Got Wind Doves Cry, I Would Die For You, Baby I'm A Star, and Purple Rain. That's side two of that album. Start to finish every time, every single time. We're going to wrap this shit show up for this week. Tone, thanks for coming on. Any parting words? No. Terrible tweets. Tell me I did not just see that. When it came to him as a football player, you'd be hard-pressed to find a bigger fan of Deion Sanders than yours truly. He's one of the greatest cornerbacks to ever play football. He may be the greatest corner to ever play football. He sure as shit was the most fun to watch. He's a legendary Hall of Famer or first ballot Hall of Famer. And when you talk about the all-time greats of the game, you have to include Deion Sanders in the conversation. If you don't, then simply put, you're a blithering idiot. But unfortunately for him, The same doesn't go when it comes to his TV personality. He's just not good, man. He's not. He's not a good analyst. He stays on the NFL network. It's got to be for name recognition. It certainly isn't because of his insightful opinions. Never was that more evident than this past week on Twitter when your boy Primetime officially lost his mind. Recently on the NFL network, he was comparing the best defensive backs in the NFL. Now, and that's an opinion. I'll give him that. He could say whoever he wants, whoever he feels are the top DBs in the NFL, that's fine. You don't have to agree with it. That's what opinions are for. But he clearly doesn't even know who Kevin Byard is. And if you don't, he's an all-pro safety for the Tennessee Titans, and he had eight interceptions last year. So anyway, Kevin Byard gets wind of what Dion says, and he tweets. He says, how do you make this statement and not include the two first-team AP all-pro safeties? Very fair point. He's talking about himself and Harrison Smith from the Minnesota Vikings. Again, not a big deal here. Just a just a professional football player who wants to know why he wasn't included or Harrison Smith on the list. A difference of opinion. No problem. But <laughs> this is where it gets really good. Deion Sanders, I'm sure, who's a well-compensated NFL analyst, he doesn't even know who the fuck Kevin Byard is, man. He doesn't. He couldn't possibly know who he is. Right? Because he tweets this out back to him. He goes, you're looking at who writers tell you who's the best. I know who players and former players feel is the best. I rest my case. You continue to be a fan 
and I will continue being the man. Hashtag truth. <laughs> Deion Russ's case, okay. I mean, that gives Bayard a free license to just drop the mic on him. And that's what he does. Because he tweets back at him and goes, and if you didn't know, I am the current NFL player who watches a ton of film. So trust me, I know balling and I know who's not. Talk about being a fan. Game, set, match. Emphatically so. Dion, you're one of the greatest football players ever. But come on, man. How do you not know who he is? How embarrassing. That is a terrible tweet. Moranolytics MVP. You the real MVP. I'm not even going to try to lie. I completely and totally marked out when I found out this past Tuesday that Daniel Bryan had been medically cleared to return to wrestling and that he was going to return to the ring. Completely lost my mind. One of the best moments in wrestling I've seen in a long, long, long time. So naturally, I couldn't wait. Which, by the way, I criticized the move. I didn't criticize him coming back. We'll get into that later. I hate the way they announced this bombshell on Twitter on a Tuesday afternoon. I feel like something like that, drop a bomb, drop a surprise on the show, reward the people who are actually watching it. I get it. I know the ratings are in the toilet right now. They're terrible. That includes me, by the way. I haven't barely watched SmackDown over the last few months because it sucked. So I wanted that kind of surprise. I love the element of the occasional surprise, like when Shane McMahon came back a couple years ago on Raw. I feel like it kind of got ruined by giving it away on Twitter. But to their credit, I'll say this much, it did make me tune in. And I was not disappointed. He came out, his music hit, and the crowd went nuts. Like they do every week when he's a GM, but the time was different. His speech about coming back and the battles that he's faced over the last two years, two years plus now, getting teary-eyed when he would talk about his wife, Bree, keeping him motivated to fight for his dreams. Oh my God. Oh my God. I totally marked out. I got watery-eyed. I don't give a shit. You want to, you, you want to, you want to make fun of me? Go ahead. I don't even care a little bit. I got emotional. I was completely invested in it. I'm so happy for him. I'm happy for him as a human being to, to, go through what he's gone through over the past couple of years with the injuries and come out of it still having his career and doing what he's passionate, clearly passionate about. He knows the risks. And I believe that he's been to every doctor. He's cleared. If he didn't get cleared by WWE, he was going to end up going somewhere else because he was physically, medically cleared. But anyway, I was just so happy for him as a person to be able to, get back to living his dreams and achieving his goals. Selfishly as a fan, I'm happy to because he's one of the best wrestlers in the world. I just started thinking in my mind, oh my God, Daniel Bryan against AJ Styles, against Nakamura, against Kevin Owens, against Sami Zayn. So many, some of these guys in NXT coming up. I cannot wait to watch it as a wrestling fan. So I am pumped for that. But one, if I can be a Nancy nitpick, one thing, slow the hell down, man. Your first night back, and he's getting killed by Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens. Why do they got to take those kind of bumps in his first night? Kevin Owens uh, 
Papa powerbombed him on the edge of the of the ring, the hardest part. It's like, God damn, I, I was cringing. I was, I was cringing. Please get up, man. Please get up. That's all I kept thinking. Please get up. Sorry, but you've always been gone for two years and he's taking these kind of crazy bumps. By the way, and he had a, a bump on his forehead. So I'm sure he told him, yo, make it look good. Do me in. And they, they sure as shit did. So anyway, he's going to WrestleMania. I'm sure it's going to end up being him and Shane McMahon against Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn. Can't wait for it. Hope to God he can stay healthy. And I hope that he has a very long career. He really deserves it. And as a fan, I'm just so goddamn pumped to watch Daniel Bryan wrestle again. Analytics LVP. Over the first handful of episodes, I've given LVP out to people and things that I really liked. And I said so at the time that it broke my heart to do it. American Idol's one, Bill Polian is another. That's not going to be the case this week. It gives me great joy to give LVP this week to someone who I think is an all time doucher. I hate. Ben Affleck. I hate almost everything about him. I do give him props for a couple movie performances that I I have to say that I liked, even though I really hate him as a person. I just hate him for so many reasons. It's not about the sexual harassment allegations. It's not about his bullshit apology in the past in the media over completely inappropriate behavior. It's not about him having to go to rehab. And you already know about all that shit. This is because Ben Affleck's getting LVP because your boy has the wackest ass, big, ugly ass back tattoo that's known to man. The worst back tattoo ever. And I say that right, back tattoo? Sounds funny saying it. Ben Affleck has the worst. And the only thing that's worse than having his tattoo is that he has lied about it. But now he's been caught. By the way, this shit goes all the way back to the summer of 2015. Shortly after he split up with Jennifer Gardner, which is like the millionth time that Ben Affleck was married to a celebrity in Hollywood and the shit didn't work out. I wonder why. But anyway, at that time, he was caught by the paparazzi getting in the car. And as he was getting in the car, part of his shirt was lifted and it revealed at the time, what looked like a tattoo. So several months passed, and at the end of 2015, the legend of this ugly, disgusting, retarded tattoo grows. While he's on the set of Live By Night, which was a movie he was filming. Was that a movie? I guess it was. Anyway, there's a picture of him walking with the hospital gown on, and you can see his open back. The tattoo on his back is revealed for the world to see, and it, it depicts like this enormous phoenix. And it's covering like pretty much his entire back. Seriously, Google it and check it out. I don't even know what the hell the thing's supposed to mean. There's reports that maybe it could be a symbol of some kind of like post-split rebirth. His ex, Jennifer Garner, didn't like that shit. She did an interview in 2016 with Vanity Fair. And at the time she asked, am I the ashes in this scenario? I take umbrage. I refuse to be the ashes. 
Good for you, Jennifer Gardner. Another one of Affleck's 10 billion exes, Jennifer Lopez, J-Lo. She calls the ink awful in public. On the TV show, Watch What Happens Live, she, is, she says, rhetorically, of course, what are you doing? So anyway, not long after that, prior to releasing uh, Batman vs. Superman, The Dawn of Justice, which got destroyed critically. I didn't think it was that bad, to be honest with you. But anyway, the critics destroyed it. Ben goes on this big campaign to fool the world. He tells TV shows, all the the tabloid shows, that the giant phoenix thing that's on his fucking back with these big, bright, ugly colors, he says it's fake and that it's fake for a movie. Never tells what movie it's for, but just says it's fake. I mean, it wasn't exactly a scandal at the time. So, you know, story dead, whatever. It's a fake tattoo for a movie. Okay, fine. Well, fast forward almost a year later. In the Boston Globe of all places, <laughs> they catch him in a huge lie. A photographer gets a picture of him while his jacket and his shirt are lifted up and is an undeniable tramp stamp of something that's on his upper ass. Undeniable, it's real, and the shit is ugly. In fact, the Boston Globe says, a real and really ugly tattoo. <laughs> Just this past week, <laughs> game over for Ben and trying to hide anything. Game over for him trying to lie and say it's a fake tattoo. He gets photographed at a beach and the picture gets on Twitter, which means it's over for him. So, so Twitter explodes with some of the funniest reactions ever to this tattoo. And as they should, because again, dude, Ben Affleck, you got the corniest, ugliest, wackest tattoo I've ever seen. Which, by the way, that's one thing. But you know what? Own it. Own having an ugly tattoo. Shit happens. We all make mistakes in life. Don't lie about it, dude. Why are you going to lie? It's like inexcusable to lie about something like that. Like I said, I hate this dude. So it brings me great joy to join in the Twitter world of mocking this asshole for having a stupid, brightly colored Phoenix tattoo, literally, that encompasses his entire back. Screw you, screw Boston, screw your stupid movies, and especially screw your corny ass tattoo. Ben Affleck, douchebag, LVP. All right, that'll wrap up this episode. Much love to Tyler Dunn for making time to do the podcast this week. Of course, thanks to Tone Pucks for coming on and doing our weekly Pat with Pucks. Most of all, thanks to each and every one of you for listening. Don't forget now, I have a new episode dropping Thursday and the Moranalytics podcast will be every Monday and Thursday going forward. Make sure you guys go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Leave me five stars, a couple kind words for a review, all that fun stuff. You can follow me on Twitter at Pat Moran Tweets. Thanks again for listening. You guys are the best. Talk to you again on Thursday.